Hello and welcome to the Surgical Spirit Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Haider Al-Hakim, the Third Eye Doctor. Pull up a chair and get ready for some candid and uncompromising discussion with experts, innovators, agitators, and influential people from every corner of health and well-being. From inside the hospital to at home in the kitchen, we're leaving no stone unturned in our quest to uncover the secrets of healthier, happier, more successful, and less stressful lives. Thank you so much for joining us, and without further ado, let's meet this episode's guest. Hello, Sally. How are you today? Hi. I'm very good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, well, well. I mean, the weather's been great. I mean, uh, apart from yesterday, you know, it doesn't feel like uh, winter at all. I think it's spring. I think it's come early. Yeah, yeah. I mean, have the flowers and stuff like that sort of come out, or are you not a, um, a gardeny kind of person? Oh, love being outdoors. They're definitely. I mean, the snowdrops have been out for a while, but all the the daffodils are coming out around here now as well. Which I say it feels quite early. I think it's been like that for a few years, probably. But it is lovely, and it definitely makes me feel that spring is coming. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, you live um, on the south coast, which which is a lovely part of um, the UK. Um, have you always been around that area, or? Yeah, no. Um, so I grew up in Southampton, interestingly, which is actually probably only about half an hour away from where I am now. But then uh, trained in Manchester, hung around in Manchester, well, that area. I'm just trying to think after I qualified for a couple of years and then actually moved back down south for family reasons, because my mum wasn't particularly well. And then um, where did I go from there? I went to kind of rice just outside London uh, kind of area. Uh, that that was lovely and then actually met my husband and then ultimately we moved back down to the south coast because his job moved down here so it wasn't something I'd ever planned to specifically come back to the Southampton area but actually that's where his work was so so I found myself back down here and and actually now I'm more kind of New Forest side um, and that's you know I spent many childhood Sundays in the New Forest so it it was a bizarre sensation of coming home uh, and a lovely sensation. What was it like in Manchester, studying in Manchester? Oh, I loved Manchester. I know everyone always talks about the kind of north-south divide in terms of friendliness. Um, and I have to say that was absolutely my experience of it. So I, I loved it from point of view of, I definitely found the people very friendly out there. It was a very vibrant city. Uh, there was, you know, there was a lot going on. Um, but it was also relatively easy to get out into nature. So you could get out to the Peak District fairly easily. You could go over to North Wales. You could go up to the Lake District. Uh, so I, yeah, I really enjoyed it. And and um, in terms of the actual medical school experience, was it, you know, looking back, was it a positive one, a negative one, or a sort of mix of both? Oh, yeah, no, definitely positive, actually. Um, I... Yeah, no, I loved it. I mean, I did the old style. It wasn't long after I went, I think, that it changed. But, you know, we had two years of literally lectures in a, in a lecture hall. Oh, I don't know what you did, but that was my that was my style of learning. And then you did the, the clinical years. Um, I mean, I quite like that because, you know, you experienced university life, you know, just bog standard university life, lecturing, you know, trying to avoid uh, going to th- going to lecture theatre and just partying all all day and night and just about passing your exams last minute.com something um <laughs> and just mixing with with non-medics i found that really um really interesting 
Yeah, no, it was great, actually. I lived, certainly the first year, I wasn't living with any medics. I was just in um, student accommodation. And that was fantastic, like you say, because you you spend a lot of time with the medics, don't you? Because it was kind of nine to five, other than I think Wednesday afternoon, maybe not. But you spend a lot of time with them. And that that was a fantastic group as well. But it just gave you that variety, actually. It just enabled you to meet a whole load of people. And like you say, you probably did experience more normal university life in the first couple of years, because then, of course, in the third year, you, you go off and you're doing your clinical placements, which I loved as well. In the fourth year, actually, when we were doing our medical and surgical finals, so in Manchester, they did it in a slightly different way. You actually didn't all do them in the fifth year. In fact, I think we all did them in the fourth year. But actually being at Manchester, and I didn't, maybe other universities were offering this, but they were doing something called the Erasmus scheme where you could do a, an exchange it wasn't actually an exchange, but it gave you an opportunity to go and actually spend that four months um, abroad, which so I went and did that in France, um, which was a fantastic opportunity. And I, I would say it was a steep learning curve from the point of view of the language. Um, but I really loved that. And it was one of the things I loved about, I guess, being in Manchester, that it gave me the opportunity to do that. And, and, and how was France different? Well, the most obvious thing when I got there in terms of difference was actually medical students. Their role was a little bit more like uh, a junior doctor in some regards. So they actually had kind of obligatory on-call sessions and they kind of covered them uh, amongst the students. So it was like a student on-call rotor, essentially. And I guess you were doing some of the basic things that we certainly would have done back in our days of of being a junior doctor. So, you know, um, uh, taking bloods, sorting out results, um, cannily. But you were also um, the first one taking a history from patients that came in, depending on, uh, as I say, what your particular role was. And so that was a bit of a wake-up call because it just felt quite different to the way we had done it in um, in England, uh, where uh, and it was good in, 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 in many respects because actually you felt more a part of the team because, you know, your role was... It was a part of the the team structure, whereas I do recall sometimes as a medical student in the UK that you would you could feel like a spare part, couldn't you? And, you know, there was quite a lot sometimes of hanging around, feeling like you were getting in people's way. And I I hated feeling like that, as I'm sure most people do, whereas in France, you didn't get that feeling. Um, And it was it was quite laid back in terms of the days. I'm just thinking they all went off and had uh, and I don't know if it's the same now, but great big lunches together it was very sociable actually there was there was none of this kind of sitting in your office you know bolting down the sandwich they all that 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 kind of social interaction was really an important part of the day and I think it would be lovely to see more of that going on over here um because I, I think it makes a huge difference and and you know did, did they have wine and sort of that kind of stuff during yeah. work which was uh, is- which is quite interesting yeah, it's funny you should ask that, because as I say that, from from what I can re- recollect, and again, this is quite a long time ago, I'm pretty sure they did have a glass of wine with their lunch. I think it was just part of the culture. Um, whether or not it's still the same now, I don't know. And I can't absolutely recall, but I think it just had a more laid back feel, I guess, in, in a way, in a typical, well, when I say a typical French way, my impression of a typical French way. Well, you know, it's just like having your apple a day, isn't it? You know, so the doctor has to listen to their own instructions and have a, you know, a glass of wine a day. 
you know, and if it's during work, well, what can you do? You know, it's part of medical Must health. Back then. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's, as I say, I suspect they probably do it differently now. I don't know, but back, we're talking quite a long time ago. Um, I'd like to say it was a couple of years ago, but it was quite a long time ago that I was a student. So, um, yeah, the, I did, think there was did, a different approach. Did, did it give you any kind of ideas coming back thinking, oh, we, we should change the way we do work here or it didn't turn you into an activist, did you? Did it? No, I don't I don't think it did specifically. I really enjoyed my time there. As I say, it was it was a steep learning curve because I remember getting a phrase book before I went, literally with medical phrases in French. Um, and so I'd I'd kind of learned all of those. And and to be honest, I didn't even have a particular background in French. I'd done a GCSE in French. I didn't do an A-level, but I did take a gap year. And for seven months of that gap year, I'd gone down to the south of France to work as an au pair. Um, so I had learned some French there. But to be honest, actually, most of my socialising at that time of being an au pair was with people from, you know, all over Europe. And actually, the common language that we spoke was English. So it didn't do much for my French. So my French was probably more at the level of being able to tell a five-year-old to get into the bath or whatever. <laughs> so I was good, good at that level because that's the kids that I was looking after. But my grasp of French probably wasn't brilliant. So anyway, I'd, I'd learned all these kind of key phrases and things. And I, I just remember confidently going up to this first patient and asking him in, in French, you know, where is the pain? I was doing cardiology. And um, he just came out with this answer and it just looked, it just went on and on. And I didn't understand a word of it because it was in Brittany as well. And they had quite a lot of the patients had quite thick Breton accents, which I did manage to get my head around. But, it, you know, it, it was definitely a steep, a steep learning curve. And, you know, sometimes that embarrassment of going actually to share this history with, you know, the senior or whoever, and, and you realise actually beyond knowing that they had chest pain, you couldn't really actually explain much more of it. But you, but, you know, sometimes when you're in that situation, you learn very quickly because, you know, you have to. Yeah, wow. So wow, it was, that's... yeah, interesting. Yeah, I mean, I did. I worked for a few years in Iraq and I remember the first um, few months just, just yeah, looking like a fool and sounding like a fool. I mean, to, to me, I, I thought, you know, I was going nowhere sort of thing. And then I, I remember um, meeting a, um, <clears throat> you know, sort of quite quite a senior religious figure and they came to the clinic and then, you know, we, we, we had a chat and I had this kind of, you know, imposter syndrome, you know, saying, oh, you know, my Arabic is no good. And, you know, I really, truly believed it. And he was like, no, it's really good, actually. You know, it's pretty impressive. And it was a surprise to me that, I, you know, that I actually learned without actually cognitively learning, so to speak. And yeah, and I think that's, that's great that you got that feedback, actually. But I, I think that's what happens when you're kind of immersed in it, that a lot of a lot of that learning is subconscious, isn't it? And you don't actually notice that it's, that it's happening. Um, and so actually getting that feedback and that helps, doesn't it? If you think, oh, well, they're obviously understanding me OK. Um, and, and it's just it's quite motivating, isn't it, to continue? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and then sort of when you were in medical school, did you have a kind of like specialty or particular field you were passionate in or is it just oh let's see what happens yeah it was totally let's let's see what happens um I mean I guess one of the things that had inspired me to go into medicine I mean it was a very last minute decision to be honest I actually applied to do biology initially and then I kind of it never kind of sat quite 
quite right with me going down that route. And then actually I went to see a, a careers advisor and um, and I think this is often what happens, isn't it? You know, uh, he said, you know, look at your grades. You're perfectly capable of getting into medical school. You know, why, why don't you do that? And so it was totally not what I'd want to talk to him about, actually. And um, I think What now, did you want to talk to them about? Well, I went into him, actually. I wanted to talk to him about uh, working with the environment and kind of conservation. So I went with that agenda. And... But of course, this is this very old school, I guess. And he was very much, you know, why do you want to do that? There's there's no there's no jobs in it. And the jobs that there are in it just pay you an absolute pittance. Um, what you should be doing is, I mean, the total opposite to coaching. What you should be doing is you should be going to medical school um, because you've got the grades and, and you can uh, and you could do it. Um, and so I suppose I thought as a kind of, uh, you know, young person at the time well he's a careers advisor I guess I should I guess I should take that on board and listen to him but I did obviously thought I'd talk to another couple of people and I had had a lovely GP uh, myself as I'd grown up he was a you know a real old style family GP lovely lovely man um and I'd come across him quite a bit because I had recurrent tonsillitis uh he then also um so lovely I remember going into him I can't remember how old I was probably about 16 and <laughs> just been away on holiday and I came back and I had this rash all over my back. And I remember thinking, oh, I better go and get this sorted out. I'm really not sure what that's all about. But I was quite convinced it was some kind of allergy or, you know, something that there would be a quick fix for. And I just remember him really gently pointing out to me that I actually had really quite a marked case of acne. But he did it in a really lovely manner. He just had brilliant communication skills. And he had this great ability to make you feel when you were with him, like you were the only person in the world that mattered. It was, and you know, now I realise what a skill that was, but really quite special. So, so when this careers advisor had said to me, "Oh, you know, you should go and do medicine," I thought, "Well, I'll go and have a chat with Doctor Thomas," um, which which I did, and he was really supportive of it. He said, "So he was inspiring in himself." I just remember thinking it would be amazing to be like you. Unfortunately, I don't think you can be like him in the NHS now, but you know, back then I thought that would be amazing to be like you. Um, and and he said, you know, medicine opens many, many doors. So, you know, it's it's a brilliant degree to do. And it, it just provides you or gives you many opportunities. I also remember saying to him, I'm, I'm quite squeamish, though. I'm not really sure I'm going to manage that side of it. And he was like, yeah, don't worry about it. You can get through it without having to deal with blood or anything like that at all. It's fine. You just choose which which direction you want to go in pretty carefully. I don't actually think that was quite true, to be honest. <laughs> I don't think you can get through it all without... Uh, interacting with bodily fluids in uh, some way or other so I guess anyway coming back to your question in, in the back of my mind I did always have actually I think maybe I would like to be a GP but I there was never anything never any particularly well-formed thought process attached to it and actually as a student um, and probably as a junior doctor in a way I found pretty much Everything I learned about, I just found it absolutely fascinating. I just, you know, the content of the medical degree, I, I absolutely loved it. I just thought how the body worked was is fascinating, how the mind works, you know, the interaction between the two. And I guess in a way, sometimes that can make it a bit harder. You know, when you come to do, when I did my junior doctor jobs, actually, I, I kind of enjoyed all of them. There wasn't one that I thought, this is definitely what I want to do. There may have been some things that actually I knew fairly early on that surgery wasn't the route for me. Um, I'm not particularly practically minded. Um, but yeah, I, I yeah, so certainly at medical school, no, I, I really didn't know. And, you know, when, after you came back and saw the career 
um, uh, person. What, what what was your parents' input to that when they when when he said about medicine and? Yeah, I mean, I'm just trying to think what did my mom say? She was very supportive of it because she would have been supportive of anything um, I think that I had I had wanted to do. My sister was doing medicine already. Mm. Um, Older, younger? She's, she's older, but mm. very different in that she had wanted to do medicine from quite an early age. Um, no other no other medics in the family. It, w- it was just her. And, and I suppose there was a bit of me thinking, actually, about is this something that I, I actually have been wanting to do? But I've resisted it because, you know, we're quite similar in many regards. And there was perhaps a bit of me that thought I want to do something different. Um, but I think, yeah, as I say, my mum was supportive of it. I think she would have, yeah, she would have supported whatever I decided to go down. But it certainly was quite last minute. because, And that's why actually I took a gap year because I withdrew my university application. And... Yeah, I can't quite remember what order it happened in, actually. But I withdrew that application. It might have been too late, or I might have decided that I just wanted an extra year just to give me a bit more time. But I applied and then got a deferred place in Manchester. Yeah, I mean, I got similar thing as well. Um, um, I actually didn't get the grades um, for the admissions. Um, but then I sort of, I guess I groveled. Uh, convincingly to the admissions yeah. officer um, and the main thing for me was not to do the exams again I just hate exams yeah yeah so, so I managed to kind of get um, an unconditional offer the, the year after so I thought that was um, yeah I was very lucky I guess well, well, actually, that 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 gobbling is a useful skill to develop, isn't it? But actually, <laughs> for someone that hated exams, that that was quite challenging. Then, wasn't it, going into medicine because you you get kind of exams one after the other, pretty much, don't you? Well, I mean, I was plagued with sort of um, pre-exam anxiety, um, mm. but not actually during the exam itself. You know, some people get anxiety during the exam itself. When I was in the actual exam uh, room or theatre, I was all right. You know, okay. I was pretty okay but sort of the two or three months before that I'd be anxiety levels would be super high and I'd be thinking about different questions and how I can't remember this right you know whatever and this and you know so I would get sort of reactive amnesia on a regular basis on different exam questions um so yeah I mean I totally learned the wrong way during my whole sort of university and um membership uh lifetime i mean i am gonna do a bachelor's i'm gonna go back to university but i'm gonna study totally different totally different you know nothing to do with sit there and memorize lists and yes (laughs) you know it's literally discussions and just having conversations and writing what you understand and you know what yeah. what you like about the topic and what you understand about the topic rather than remembering what the lecturer said and you know yeah so it's a very different way of learning and i guess will feel quite quite different for you yeah yeah i mean which is why i like having conversations because i learn a lot from conversations mm. rather than just you know sort of dry reading of textbooks and i mean i still like listening to lectures um but not necessarily in a kind of exam setting 
Um, well, I guess maybe actually when you, you know, you've been to med school and certainly, certainly the way I learned, there was an awful lot of fact. I mean, a lot of it was just memorising fact, wasn't it? Which ultimately, even if you're finding the, the subject content really interesting, it's just a very boring way to, to learn it. And I guess that's why they've, you know, modernised it since then, haven't they? And they do it, you know, more at least in a problem solving way, which does sound a lot more appealing, albeit that I did enjoy the way I did it. But yeah, I guess it's it's more real life like it sounds like yeah i think sort of the whole the whole process of participation in the actual um experience of going through medical school i think that's something that i didn't do enough i was just too busy memorizing lists and getting through the lectures and mm. you know making sure i've got all the um key objectives at hand and it 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 just became too too laborious and not really um an experiential uh, process. Um, so I'll be doing a Bachelor of Arts. So that's going to be much more, yeah, more sort of participating in the whole experience rather than passing the exam, you know. Yeah, fascinating. So gosh, so you're going to be doing that alongside everything else that you're doing? Well, I think, you see, because you get good at something, it kind of becomes automatic, doesn't it? And then you can do the next thing, which is not so automatic. And yeah. then you get good at that. And then that turns into another, you know, automated machine within your biological system. Um, you know, it's like sort of me talking and, you know, a lot of BS. It's become automatic. You know, I just sort of babble <laughs> on and it sort of comes out in a semi, you know, autonomous ma fashion and it kind of makes sense. I don't know what the fuck I'm saying, but it just comes out in that kind of way, and that's become automatic and and unconscious. Um, yeah, it takes just move very, on to the next thing. Yeah, it, it's it's very little effort. So I I think going back to university and kind of doing it my way because I have that, mm -hmm. you know, maturity, and um, I mean I don't want to call it confidence. I I think it's just you know humility that you do actually know very little and. It's actually good to know very little because, you know, your expectations are different and you can learn a lot more. Sorry, I'm rambling on here. I mean. No, 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 no. I was thinking it's being open to learning, isn't it? Which actually is, you know, a great thing to have in all avenues of life. Whereas, I mean, I, th I think in medical school, it was just about passing exams. You know, it wasn't really learning. It was like, right, I've got to get over this hurdle and this hurdle. Yeah. And then I've got finals to get through and then I've got my you know, um, house job to get through and then I've got to get onto the SHO rotation and I've got to get onto the SPR rotation. Oh, it's like sort of not, you know, never-ending process of ticking boxes. Yeah, I think, I think it is, and jumping the next hurdle, the next hurdle, the next hurdle, and then sometimes maybe you get there and you think, hang on a minute, <laughs> what, what do I do now? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, what... What got you to leave? I mean, you know, you mentioned um, the illness of your mother. What what happened? Because I remember you wrote a post in LinkedIn about um, taking time off work and, yeah, you know, put it, putting in your notice. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that was, I'm just trying to think how many years had I been qualified then. I'd probably been qualified. So I did my house officer jobs. I then did a year as a medical SHO. I then took a year off although I didn't I took six months off and went traveling in Australia that was fantastic um, and then came back and did um, an A&E job 
And then I applied for a year. Yeah, as you can tell, I dotted around quite a lot as a junior doctor because I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I then applied for this. Um, uh, it was a one-year rotation, and it was kind of Hammersmith and Charing Cross Hospital. So by that point, I was living with a, a couple of uh, fellow doctors who I just totally randomly met at the induction on this, this A&E uh, job that I was doing. They weren't doing A&E, actually. One of them was doing one of the anaesthetics, and one was doing peds. But the accommodation uh, was really grotty. And so one of them just, you know, I just remember her tapping me on the shoulder and saying, I vaguely recognise you. Did you go to Manchester? And I said, oh, yeah, I did, actually. And she went, yeah, are you living in the accommodation? And I said, I am. And she said, what do you think? And I said, it's pretty awful, isn't it? I mean, it was, it was just, it was very, very green. Um, And she said, oh, do you want to, um, do you want to get a place together? So I didn't really know her from Adam. And she said, I've also asked that girl over there. Um... She said, I don't know her either, but she seems all right. So we got a place together for this six month. Uh, that was when I was doing A&E. And it was just, we just had such a good time. It was just so fortuitous. We just got on really well. Um, it just worked fantastically well. And so at the end of the six months, I think I knew that I wanted to, you know, ideally stay living with this pair for a bit longer. So I tried to get a job that would be somewhere nearby. And that's when I applied to Charing, this, this rotation, thinking it would it would be near Charing Cross train station, which actually it isn't. So I did I did six months in oncology in Charing Cross, and then the next six months was in Hammersmith. And it was three months medical A&E and then three months renal. So I did the three months medical A&E, and then um, I, I was doing, it was during the renal job, and I can't remember how much notice I gave them. But my mum had, she'd been diagnosed with breast cancer when I was um, 16. And she'd been free of it for a long time, but then she'd had um, bony metastases. But she'd had bony metastases for, for quite a few years, and she'd been relatively, relatively well. And it was during this renal post that she got diagnosed with liver metastases. And I, I just remember taking that quite badly. I was very, very, you know, very close to my mum. And I was doing this job, which was all <laughs> was all consuming this job. It was very... It was a very pressurised job in terms of the hours, the intensity of the work. I mean, actually, like lots of jobs are, but this one particularly stood out. And I I just remember thinking, you know, I could, I didn't know at that point how things were going to, you know, work out for my mum, what, you know, what the timelines were, but I kind of knew what the outcome was going to be ultimately. Um, and I just thought, if I stay doing this job, I'm just going to have no time with her because, you know, the on-call intensity was such that I just wouldn't, be around for her and I you know I grappled with it for a while because I think you know you do kind of get trained as a doctor almost don't you or you certainly did back then that you know you're always putting the patient first and of course you're always aware of your colleagues and if I leave the impact it has on my colleagues etc and I, I remember even actually when I kind of went to speak to somebody they were quite they were quite taken aback <laughs> you know but I just thought actually if I give them some notice as much notice as I as, as I can um I actually didn't feel that I could focus on the job at the time because I was just quite distraught by this. And I thought, I I just need to go and have some time with her. And that's exactly what I did. And I'm so glad that I did that because there were numerous reasons, you know, that little voice telling you why you shouldn't be doing that. But, you know, at the end of the day, sometimes you just have to allow yourself to be a human being and, you know, have human needs. And and that was what I needed to do at the time. So that's, that's what I did. And I'm very grateful that I did that. How much time did you take off in total? So 
Yeah, so actually that, it was only actually five weeks. I only had five weeks left. So I must have given them a couple of weeks notice and then uh, five weeks. And then I did go um, back to work, probably not least of all, because my mum was uh, like, Sally bubble off. No, she didn't say that. But she uh, she was very aware of, um, she was always thinking of other people. Um, so I, I can't even think which job I went back in to do then, actually. Um and actually, she uh, she was with us for another year. So there was obviously bits that I was missing during that year. Um, but, I, but I did manage to keep up some of the training. Um, that worked out well. But it it, it meant that I had that, those five weeks with my mum. And she was still relatively well. Um, and, yeah, I'm just I'm very glad that I was able to do that and have that time. What what, what did you learn from those five weeks that, that you were away and spending all the time with your mother well I suppose it just really makes you realize that you know what your what your priorities are at the end of the day and I guess you know one of the things I think with medicine my experience and certainly you know the experience of other friends that I know that do it people that I work with now is it can become all-consuming and you can easily lose sight of you in the middle of all that and you know I think we all know how easy it is to you you kind of assume this identity and you and you just you just lose who you are in the middle of all of that. And, you know, my family has always been and always will be hugely important to me. And so, you know, I guess my learning from that time is actually, you know, sometimes you have to follow your heart and you have to be true to who you are and and you have to be kind to yourself and you have to factor in your own needs. And even if you look at that ultimately from, from the job's perspective, you know, actually that's how we're going to be able to, you know, maintain ourselves in that role or, or, or do a better job because if you're not looking after yourself or kind of tending to your own needs and it's it's really I was going to say very difficult but it's probably almost impossible to be to be fully there for, for other people and, and did it change you as a doctor coming back after those five weeks or was it not not enough maybe <clears throat> Whether or not it was specifically those five weeks or that whole experience, actually, um, you know, I think as we go through life, we all pick up different life experiences, don't we? And 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 they, they all do affect you. And I, I, you know, I certainly, until I lost my mum, I didn't have any concept of the depth of grief, for example. And so I guess that you know, you know, with patients you're dealing with the difficult things they're going through. Yes, you're not you're not going through that with them. It's they're on their journey. But I guess it gives you some insight into into some of the difficulties that the, you know people are going through. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and then, um, I mean, I saw that you kind of did. Did you leave? Well, well, well actually, you 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 went on to train as a GP. So I went on to train as a GP, um, and then I did that. I did that role. So I qualified as a GP, but actually you could do an extra six months training at that time of general practice and you could choose um, an area. It was about choosing an area of interest to you. And actually I chose, um, well, GU medicine, as it was called back then, or sexual health. Um, I chose that more as a learning need, to be honest with you, because I was a relatively young female doctor and I'd already noticed that quite a few, um, particularly young females, were coming in to see me with, with those type of issues. So it wasn't at the time, it wasn't particularly... Um, something that I was passionate about so much as I say a learning need but I so I so that you know the extra six months I did part-time general practice and part-time in my local sexual health clinic 
And I absolutely loved it. I, I, I really loved that job. Why? And so why? Um, I loved actually, it perhaps provided me with some of the things that general practice wasn't. And I, you know, I can see it looking back now. It, uh, it was back working within a team structure again. Um, but not only was it that team structure, because of course it depends on who's in the team, doesn't it? And it was it was a really well functioning team. It was um, it was a team full of people who were you know very forward looking. Uh, they had great focus on um, patient care. They were very compassionate individuals. Um, I guess we were all kind of singing from the same song sheet, um, and that was just really lovely. And also. I think we had something that often is missing now and uh, we had more autonomy in a way. So actually our, our kind of feelings and opinions about actually what is going to help the patient, you know, how can we make this service better? That was taken into consideration in a way that actually very often, certainly in my latter years in the NHS, I didn't feel that that, that was taken uh, into consideration. And so it just led to a very harmonious working atmosphere, actually. And, you know, I, I like the variety of the work. Um, I used to look forward to going to work there. Whereas, to be honest, when after I qualified as a GP, I I started working in a practice that, with the benefit of hindsight, probably wasn't the best practice for me to be working in. And I used to, I wouldn't say I dreaded going in there. I just found it very isolating. There was no sense of team there. You could go the whole day and actually you might not necessarily see, uh, you know, another healthcare professional. And I, having come from a GP training practice where actually you sat down and had lunch together and, you know, you had that, again, that sense of team, you, it was really lacking in that practice. Um, so by contrast, the sexual health, I really, I really enjoyed it. So that one experience of, the you know in in that general practice partnership probably put you off quite a lot I, I think it did and and well what then happened is I actually went off on maternity leave with my first and I you know I knew when I came back that I wanted to work part-time not full-time and so I guess I had to make a decision at that point do I stick with general practice which financially speaking would have been a better decision to make or do I go back to um you know the sexual health clinic and work there as it was called you know staff grade back then and actually in a way it was a bit of a no-brainer because I thought you know I've got a job that I'm actually slightly dreading going into I've got a job that I actually love going into um so and that's that's I guess how I then sidestepped essentially into sexual health and I just I just never went back to general practice. And the longer I'd been away from it, actually, the less and less appealing it became to go back into it. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that, that was why. But I guess, yeah, looking back, yeah, I think it's it's about finding the right working environment for you and the right practice. And, and you know, if I were to be in that situation again, I would perhaps do a little bit more research. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what was was there any stigma sort of involved because you sort of you know traditionally you know a, a GP is higher up in the hierarchy than a than a staff grade mm. or a or a specialty yeah. doctor? Um, did you sort yeah. of experience any stigma there? Yeah, I mean, there's def there's definitely stigma, isn't there? And I I think you know having then worked for years in in different hospitals and and in different specialties as a specialty doctor, it, it can be quite a difficult place to be I think um because it feels like there is a stigma like actually even the even the term like 
feel myself doing when I said it's staff grade. I, it just sounds so derogatory somehow. It just, um, it's just a really, I just find it a really ugly term. Um, I'm much happier with specialty doctor, uh, you know, SAS doctors. Yeah, there was, there was a stigma. Um, but I guess from my point of view, again, I thought, well, my priority now, you know, I then went on to have a second child is is actually my family. And this enables me to um, continue making them my priority. So I'm happy to accept that, you know, that's like stigma if it, if it enables me to do this. And and I guess it just sort of confirmed your own belief in, in, in that whatever you're doing is actually the right thing. And it sort of increases your own um, self-confidence and self-ability yeah I guess it is working out I think often we kind of know in our gut don't we what's the right thing to do but then of course all the cognitive stuff comes in and 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 actually it can it can confuse the picture at times really um and certainly I suppose you know a lot of this I can say with the benefit of of hindsight um and it does and I think you need different things at different points in your career so certainly at that point actually that was the right that you know that was the right thing for me to do I guess as time went on actually you know I perhaps did start to feel some of the frustration of of being in um in that role in a way that I hadn't done initially because actually my focus had been elsewhere it'd been on you know having young children and I guess that's the other thing just to be aware of you know as you go throughout your career your, your needs change and that's fine it's just it's just having that awareness as to actually where to go with that yeah yeah I mean it's always easier in hindsight but as you said at the time it was this is a need that needed to be fulfilled and and you know that was the best option at the time yeah yeah um I mean it, it was a similar thing for me I was I was an SPR and then I decided to um, you know, essentially come off the um um what's the word, you know, uh the rat race just yeah. to kind of have a bit of a breather and you know, I became a um a specialty doctor, uh, which was quite shocking for, for, for many of my colleagues. Mm. Uh but for me it was like it was lovely because, you know, the pressure was off, so to speak, and I could think yeah. about other things. Um <clears throat> And that allowed me to to actually leave the NHS for a few years and just do something totally different and and um, yeah, think about other aspects of life, you know, because yeah, yeah. because it's so consuming, you know, being in the NHS and you know being a medic in the NHS. Yeah. Totally. I mean, I do vividly recall, actually, when you said, "What did I particularly want to do?" I do remember as a house officer, I had this most lovely. Um, medical registrar she was actually one of the gastro um, registrars and she had she had a baby as well and I think she was working full-time doing these um, uh, you know on call rotors and I just remember thinking I, I don't know how she's doing that just an amazing lady and just so lovely um, but also I suppose you know from that I, I do remember then seeing the life of a, of a gen med registrar and thinking actually although the content of what you're doing amazing do I want do I want that and actually the answer was no yeah, it's all yeah. consuming uh, yeah. Uh, you know yeah for sure for sure I mean you know seeing um you know uh, the senior senior registrars and the consultants you know doing doing the work in in London and and I only experienced London I mean I did go to DGHs and you know it was much more chilled more, uh, much more relaxed but 
I, I don't know. It just wasn't for me, sort of, at all. Mm. And, and I found it very difficult to justify justify it to myself. I mean, I could logically argue, you know, around it, yeah. but but um, yeah, just thinking about it made me very tired. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a sign, isn't it? If you think, yeah, just yeah. thinking about it is making me feel like that. So you know, um, you're working as a as a specialty doctor, and then what happened? Because you know, you sort of saw the world of of coaching. Uh, yeah. So pop up to you. Say again. Sorry. It 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 sort of popped out in front of you. You know, this whole sort of world of coaching. Yeah. Well, I guess um, what happened first is that um, I switched from sexual health to elderly care as a specialty doctor. Um, and I guess that was maybe because I'd got to that point where I, I had, I think I had just got stuck in a rut with it, and I couldn't quite see at that time where I was going to go with it. And maybe I had still had a bit of a hankering for the general medicine. I'm not sure, but um, but I switched over to elderly care, and now that was a massively steep learning curve, hugely. Because I mean, I guess I'd been essentially out of uh, you know general medicine for well, probably not far short of 15 years by that point. Um, and even some of the, you know, the um, acronyms and things, I, I remember having to lean over to one of the junior doctors saying, What's, what does AKI stand for? You know, all these things, actually, uh, things had just moved on. And, you know, I, I hadn't because I'd been working in a very different area. So that was, a, that was a hugely steep learning curve. And I think it was, you know, when I look back on that decision, it probably wasn't one of my better thought through decisions. I think it was a bit of a knee jerk, you know, need to move on from here. What should I do? Oh, I know. Um, you know, spoke to her. We were in, there was a lovely specialty doctor network actually where I was working at the time. So I knew a couple of the doctors in elderly care. Um, and I did go and shadow um, one of them for the for a day. Um, in retrospect, probably wasn't quite enough to get a real feel for it. Um but I remember thinking, oh, yeah, no, that's that seems like a good plan. And, that, you know, there were many things I enjoyed about it. But, you know, after two or three years, I thought, you know, I'm really not sure that this is uh, this is for me. The the environment just, you know, like in a, the, the acute medical unit. And some people love that frenetic environment. But, you know, actually, I realised that I probably wasn't one of them. Um, and actually, a I just came across coaching because a friend happened to be going to a course in London at the same time as I was going to a course in London. I was, I can't quite remember the, it was Medical Excel Centre, it was a brilliant conference, but she went off to do this foundational coaching course. And so we got the train back down together and she she was telling me about it on the way back down. And and so that's how I first heard about coaching. Um, I don't think I really knew what it was. And it just sounded, like, you know, I was just totally absorbed by what she was saying. And it, it just sounded a bit like, you know, the missing, the missing link for me somehow. I've, always been very interested in the communication but you know we know with patients don't we that if you're just doling out advice it doesn't always land particularly well whereas this just sounded like an alternative way of communicating that that really resonated with me um but I, I was a bit stuck in my job so actually what I decided to do at that point I thought I'll go and get some career coaching myself because then I can get a feel for what it's like to be on the receiving end um and also, I'm still in this situation that I'm not particularly happy with. So I, so I had some uh, had some coaching, which was really good. It was really helpful. Developed a kind of niche area for myself in in elderly care, um, which was more around 
advanced care planning. So we, we had a ward, I job shared it with a colleague. Um, it was, you know, uh, extreme frailty, uh, lots of patients had cognitive impairment. And so a lot of what we were doing as, as well as um, kind of optimizing the medical management was around having conversations either with patients or relatives around advanced care planning. There was a certain amount of palliative care in there. And that certainly suited me a lot better, but I'd started doing the coaching qualification and I just loved it. I just really enjoyed doing it. It's just, you know, I learned so much about myself just from doing the qualification, actually. And I just, you know, it's just a slightly different way of communicating. Um, And I just thought, actually, when I looked back on my own career, there probably were quite a few times when actually coaching really would have helped me to, to work out where I was going or to get you know just to get that clarity so I could make some decisions that were perhaps a little bit less haphazard than the you know what well, I'll just switch from sexual health to elderly care so that was what got me interested in it and and the coach that you saw um were they a medic or um or a sort of a non-medic coach no no she was a non-medic um at the at the time I just remember thinking I wanted to do something face to face so this was obviously before the pandemic um and I don't even know actually how much people were offering online coaching and I'm not sure but it, anyway I just thought I'll just find someone fairly local and then um, I went along and had a chat to her and yeah we just we got on well so I just thought actually yeah no that's great she told me uh, the kind of things that we would be looking at um, yeah so that you know that worked well for me at the time and you know how how did those sessions change you I think a lot of it comes down to, well, number one was I just guess it just opened things up for me. I think the thing is when you're within the world of medicine, you know, a bit like you said before about you jump over, you know, you go from the next stage to the next stage to the next stage. It's quite prescribed, isn't it? And you you do have to make the odd decision here or there about which track you go down. But then once you're on it, you're on it again, aren't you? And um, and much though I know that actually for lots of people that's quite appealing, at different you know at different stages in their life but I think you can become quite blinkered and and I suppose one of the things I got from that coaching was that there are so many options out there aren't there there are so many different things and actually um be it within the world of medicine or outside of the world of medicine but I guess it almost kind of gave me permission to start thinking actually I've worked for however many years as a doctor I don't have to keep going down that route if I don't want to. There, there are different things that I could be doing. And I, I suppose the other thing I realised is that a lot of what had been getting in my way, it was all thinking stuff. Um, but I don't think I, I didn't really recognise that at the time. You know, so having that space to sort of think about the thinking stuff that that helps and doesn't help and yeah, um, uh, sorting that out, you know, decluttering essentially. Yeah, kind of decluttering in a way that when you just keep it all in your head, I don't know about you, but I think I you just go around in circles, don't you? If it's still up there, it's just all just becomes a bit of a mishmash and actually getting it out by by talking it through. And I know sometimes for, for some people it helps, you know, writing it all down, um, but kind of getting it out. It was that safe space that you could just say exactly what you were thinking and what came to mind. And and actually, with someone there kind of reflecting back what you've just said or, um, you know, kind of gently challenging your thinking sometimes, you you just get ahead a lot. You just get more insight, I think. It just just makes that journey smoother. 
And, and and did you start sort of going out into the wider field of, of coaching or did you, you know, specialise into medical career coaching straight away? So I suppose with the clients I work with in practice and after, it's it's it wasn't specialised as in, so probably most of my clients have been medical, but actually equally I am happy, obviously, coaching people who aren't within the medical circle. I guess within the world of medicine, I understand it. You know, I've, I've worked in it for, for for a lot of time, and so some of the some of the issues, um, although everyone's experience of it obviously will be different, but in terms of how the system works, etc., I get that. Um, it's quite nice sometimes as well working with people kind of outside of that as well, because it, you know, again, it gives you insight into into other worlds and and other worlds of work and and career. And, you know, um, can, can you actually, you know, design your career or design your life? Is 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 there a sort of a science behind this? Well, the, the work I'm quite interested in at the moment is this um, Design Your Life, which is um, Bill Burnett and Dave Evans. So they're actually, en- they've got engineer backgrounds um, and work at Stanford University and it. I guess what what they've done is is kind of taken a lot of um, what they're doing with engineering and kind of applied some of the same um, uh, process to actually how you design your life. So it's, I think one of the things that can happen sometimes is that we think, okay, uh, this isn't the right situation for me. What is what is the answer for me? As if there is only one answer, and of course there isn't. Only, there isn't only one answer. It's about being open to you know to the whole process and to, to learning as you go and to kind of designing your way forwards. Um, it, it's it's just quite a it's quite a refreshing way to look at it. But again, it's it's still based on having that initial understanding of yourself, um, and, and that is something that I think as doctors we often don't have a huge we've been so busy i think well certainly speaking from my experience and people i've worked with we've been so busy kind of focusing on other people and managing that that we often have lost sight of ourselves a bit you know a bit like i mentioned earlier and it i think if you when that happens it makes it harder to to make decisions moving forwards um so i guess with designing your life it's still based on actually having that initial understanding of yourself but it's then it's then what you do with it and kind of having a bias to action. So, you know, being curious and, and being open-minded. Um, and I just find it quite a refreshing, a refreshing way to approach life, really. Okay, so it's sort of more of a, um, so to speak, you need to know where the start point is, which is really important. Yeah. You have um, actions uh, on the way in order to get to a prescribed goal at the end of the day. Yeah, except I don't know if it is a prescribed goal. I, um, I guess it's it's being open to the fact that actually... Sounds very yeah. medical, doesn't it? Prescribed. <laughs> um, but I think there's, you know, we've all got various different lives that we could be leading and potentially really quite happily. There's not just one solution um, for each one of us. because, And I think actually when you realise that, that can... It can be quite liberating, actually, because otherwise you can get stuck in that. I need to find the right solution. I need to find what this is. And I need to, you know, and, and actually that's like looking for a needle in a haystack in a way, whereas actually approaching it more from, you know, there are various different avenues that I could go down actually kind of opens it up for you. It feels like that pressure of having to get it right, particularly if you feel that the decision you've made initially was wrong. Arguably, that that needs a bit of a 
unpicking really I think it just it does take the pressure off um, and it's quite an exciting way to be moving forwards yeah I mean for a control freak like me I need to know you know where the end is otherwise um, a lot of anxiety involved how 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 do you deal with that you know for for control freaks yeah well I guess it's what you define as the end point in a way isn't it because I suppose the end point doesn't have to be a specific career with a label attached to it right it's 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 kind of what you're looking to get out of your career so in a way right. that's the end thing, knowing what you're looking for and that's taking that into context of your 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 work life but of course that's part of your whole life as well so again it comes back down to kind of understanding yourself and actually what's really important to you and you know what drives you um and in a sense that's that's your end point and i think at different points in our career that may be different things so you know quite early on in your career it may be that you're you know, actually getting the finances sorted is is more important to you. You know, yeah. certainly something we see quite often, I think, isn't it? As you get older, um, actually, that sometimes you're looking for something different out of your career. That's not to say you're not looking, you know, we've all got to earn money at the end of the day, but you might be looking to find something else from your career as well. And, and actually kind of knowing what that is um, helps you to work out a route to get there. Yeah, so that's quite interesting. So in, in, in my case, we'd be talking more about abstractions and values and and um um virtues rather than actually uh, you know uh, physical endpoints or or uh, empirical endpoints yeah exactly you know what what are you wanting your career to give you at this at this point in time um and, and kind of delving a bit more deeply into that yeah 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 so that's interesting and 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 but i mean you know the major question is 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 you know how do you find out about yourself what 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 kind of metrics or what kind of techniques did you use in order to to know yourself yeah so i mean you mentioned values there definitely values i have found that um so helpful kind of understanding what my values are because it kind of gives you a bit of a basis to make decisions as you move forward you've always got that point of reference essentially um and it helps put situations into context so situations for example where you you know sometimes you're in a situation where you actually have a really bad reaction to it or it just doesn't sit well with you and you know previously I would have not been able to necessarily put that into any context um but actually you know that can be a useful indicator as to whatever value it is it's not being met and you know, when I look back at some of my career in, in medicine, for example, I can see where some of the disconnects were based on what my my values are. So I think values has been a real game changer for me. I think um, the knowing your strengths as well, I think, makes a huge difference because I think we, we're quite good at focusing on our negatives, but we're not necessarily so good at focusing on actually on what we do really well um, and what we really enjoy doing, particularly, um, the, you know, the combination of the two and actually how you can leverage that as well. I think we can assume, you know, very often there may be something that we're particularly good at. We kind of assume that everyone else is or everyone else enjoys doing that. And that's not necessarily the case. That's worth exploring. One of the other tools that I use quite often is DISC behavioural profiling. I don't know if you've come across that one at all. Um, it's it's a, one of the personality profiling tools. And it's, it's um, honestly, that has been valuable to me. It's really useful for, for starting to build that understanding of yourself and actually what makes you tick and, you know, what you bring to the table. 
but it's very useful from point of view of communication as well so it's actually very useful in any context so either at work because you start to kind of understand perhaps a bit more where other people are coming from and and so you can adapt your own communication and it's been really useful for me just within my family as well actually just that understanding that things before that riled me that I just didn't get that's been really useful because I've been able to put that into context that's called the disc behavioral disc yeah d-i-s-c d-i-s-c and that and that stands for so the 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 actual acronyms are um, dominance influence steadiness and compliance or you could come up with probably any four words beginning with those but they're the they're the four main behavioral styles and of course we're all a blend of all of them and we can all wind up or down you know whichever style and in fact we do that particularly in medicine intuitively we adjust ourselves according to the situation but it just increases your awareness a little bit more of uh, and and kind of gives you strategies as to you know how you can do that and and could, could you give us give us examples of, of of where that's helped you in your in your understanding of yourself yeah so uh, i mean even if i think even if i think assuming he's not going to listen to this if me and my husband we can, we can communicate quite differently um he is he wants the bottom line so i can come along and i can start talking around something and and he will be like i just want i just i just need or he'll cut me off halfway um so so now i kind of get that actually if there's something i want to talk about of any consequence with him i need to present that in a way that he will he will get because what it leads to is a much more helpful conversation than me getting my back up right from the beginning because actually i haven't put it over in a way that kind of sits with him yeah 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 so it's sort of um um knowing what his strengths are what what his weaknesses are and and, and sort of introducing it so that you know there's that understanding between you two and um um coming to some kind of uh agreement so to speak yeah absolutely and you know understanding actually what what drives him a little bit more as well and 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 kind of potentially what he needs and um and, and what's behind you know our, our behavior um it, it's been really useful and again you know, I've used that as a, a personal example, but you can use that in a, in, in a work situation as well. Um, and as I say, it's, it's not about labelling people, but it's just about increasing your understanding of, of how you can adapt your own communication, which is ultimately going to lead to, you know, better relationships. Yeah, I mean, for sure, for sure. And understanding what what motivates and what what drives other people will definitely mm-hmm. allow that harmony mm-hmm. to, to persist at, at work. And I think that's important. And have 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 you sort of gone back to um, to the NHS? You know, with your um, coaching expertise, and 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 what have you noticed? You know, if you have gone back to the NHS. Yeah. So most of the most of the work I've done so far has been one to one. I'm due to go into run some workshops actually with the SAS doctors locally um, over the next few months, uh, which will be good. There's a big focus at the moment, isn't there, on kind of well-being because, you know, well, the NHS feels like it's in patches, really. Um, and I think there are so many system changes that that need to happen. Um, but on an in- individual level, you know, what what can what can we do? Um, and actually coaching all that that general um, uh, philosophy sits sits well within that in terms of 
managing your own well-being because again a lot of it is about self-awareness um and you know what you need and um that all lends itself very well to that that coaching thing so it's not just about we all know about things don't we about sleep etc etc but it's about how you how you design that how you incorporate into your life what's what's important to you i think is really kind of key to well-being yeah yeah that's I think, you know, this whole notion that, you know, coercion of instilling resilience within individuals is kind of um, done and dusted. And I think, you know, there, there needs to be kind of a, a voluntary way of allowing people to understand themselves a lot more in order to create a secondary harmony um, within yeah. the system. because. You know the system is made up of individuals, and I think if if individuals know themselves a lot more, um, you know, ultimately the the system will change. Um, yeah. The system's certainly broken, and it's it's full of broken people. Whether, I mean, you know, that's that's not a good thing to say, really. Talking about the NHS, you know, it is sort of <laughs> it's not, but I know, think full anyone... of broken people. But you know, I don't think there's many people out there who would argue with that. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. And I think the the resilience word, I have to say, you know, certainly when I was working in the NHS, that didn't used to land well with me because it, it's used in a way that can sometimes imply that actually the fault rests with the individual as opposed to with this system, which we all know is creaking and broken. And, and so I think, yeah. I mean, it's a culture yeah. of blame, to be honest. You know, it's just perpetuating the yeah. culture of blame. Yeah, and yeah. It's always persisted for a long time. And, you know, how do we shift that culture? And I guess it sort of takes brave individuals to sort of go out there and, and, and show them that there is an alternative to the, to the status quo and mm. that there is an alternative culture to blame. And it's actionable, which is, which is the most important yeah. thing. It's, it's not just rhetoric and, and just political sound bites. It's, it's something yeah. that, that, that's tangible and that's, that's physical and that's on the ground. Um, so I don't know how that's going to happen, but I'm sure it will do because, um, otherwise it's unsustainable and, you know, we can't go down, you know, the U S model of, of, yeah. um, big buck medicine. Um, you know, we do have a lot of, um, listeners, uh, from the U S and, you know, they're all crying out, you know, for a change in the whole way in which healthcare delivery is done. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, you know, we did see a lot of, what's the word, pharmaceutical chicanery during the current pan pandemic. Yeah. Um, and that's just a reflection of the underlying healthcare delivery, um, you know, of uh, political and and uh, corporate collusion. Mm -hmm. I hope I don't get that I mean, sort of, you know, COVID blue line sort of <laughs> going across <laughs> by the way covid pandemic is this and <laughs> i think there's enough of um you know people want the nhs to remain don't they you know people people within it people people that use it it's in everybody's interests um in my mind anyway for it to um to be something that is sustainable but it it doesn't feel like that at the moment 
But I think it is, as I say, I think there is enough, the rumblings are starting to happen. There are increasing numbers of people, you know, singing from the same song sheet. Um, and then I guess it is, you know, for, for, for individuals within it is, you know, what, what can we do at an individual level from point of view of ourselves? Um, I think it's really important to keep sight of that amidst the need to clearly make a lot of cultural changes within the NHS as a whole. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, this whole notion around personal responsibility is really important. And, you know, as as you said, celebrating one's strengths, and I'm sure there's lots of very talented, mm. uh, politically astute medics out there, uh, young and old, uh, and I think we should celebrate them and, and encourage them and coach them into the right sort of niches yeah. and careers, you know, for us to 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 um, benefit the NHS, not just for the patients, yeah. you know, more importantly for the uh, healthcare professionals working within it. Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, you know, I've used the NHS myself and I've been very lucky to kind of meet, you know, absolutely awesome healthcare professionals. Um, you know, and the same for my parents and and uh, siblings. Um, and it just takes lots of hard work. And I think you know, if if we can celebrate that and encourage it and encourage yeah. people, uh, I think it's a win win. Yeah, totally. And there's nothing better than a win win situation. Well, I I, th I think in life, most of the time, it's win win. Um, mm. you know, even a loss is a win. Um, because you know, there's so many learning opportunities in the loss. Um, yeah. if the right culture is there, you know, if the right, you know, metaphysical language is there, then you know, I think there's always a scope for win win in most situations. Um, yeah, and no, you know, I'm, if, I'm if, you if, if, if we can instill that, you know, within the learning uh environment of, of uh medicine. Um, maybe that's something to think about for the future. Yeah, definitely. I think it is instilling it, like you say, isn't it? And it and it takes time. Um, but it's it's moving in that direction. That's the the important thing. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad that you know the junior doctors have have have, have had enough and and they want change. Mm -hmm. And you know that's absolutely awesome. Um, I didn't have the guts at the time. I was you know too weak and. And sort of feeble um, and um, not open-minded enough when I was younger, but now you know it's it's awesome that they've actually um, been able to step out of the uh, you know the lattice and uh, shake it all up. Yeah, totally. I fully support them, and it was interesting going back into medicine, having been out for for quite a long years actually. And um, one of the things that really struck me was. The difference for junior doctors now compared to when I did it, which you know, I say it wasn't that long ago, it was quite a while ago, but you know, in the grand scheme of things. And yeah, as I say, I fully support them. That sense of they were just being pushed left, right, and centre. There was no no continuity, um, no, you know, you don't get that sense of belonging because you, you're not really part of a team structure, um, as well as all the, the other issues. So yeah, no, I kind of fully support them um and take my hat off to them for you know, just having the courage to to go with it. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's been absolutely fascinating and sort of I think we have more questions than answers after this podcast <laughs> session, which is a very Stop kind of, which is a very sort of coaching thing anyway, um, you know, having more questions than answers. 
Um, but I mean, I'd like to sort of end with this sort of question. What, you know, g- g- given that you've sort of gone down the, uh, uh, the path of career coaching, what, what would you tell yourself sort of, you know, that 16 year old who was sort of walked out the room, sort of scratching their heads thinking, Oh, you know, what would you, what would your three sort of, oh, obviously coaching isn't about giving advice, but you know, what yeah, yeah. kind of sort of gentle <laughs> reminders would you, would you give, you know, give the 16 year old Sally on, on that day where, where she came along and, you know, wanting to. Yeah, the 16 year old Sally. What would you tell her? Or sort of. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, that's it. Consider. Yeah, what would you, I was just thinking, you listen to it. Yeah, I would say, um, you know, be you. It's it's so much easier if if you go through life being yourself. It's it's exhausting trying to be somebody that you're not, and and a lot of that comes down to um, self awareness again and that understanding of yourself that we've we've spoken about. Um, I would probably talk to her around self compassion actually, which I also feel very strongly about because um, I think we have to we have to be kind to ourselves and again understand ourselves to to be able to um, show up as we want to. Um, I think I would probably reiterate that she to her that she she always has a choice. So you know you you make a decision and you you go down that route. Um, but wherever you are at any point in your career, you do you do always have a choice. And that choice may be to stay where you are um, and, and make tweaks. It may be it may be to move on, but don't ever feel stuck. Um, or if you do feel stuck, do something about it. Um, and that's completely OK. Um, and I would always encourage her if yeah, if she's feeling things just aren't quite right, then yeah, have the courage to, to look into what's what's going to help that, what's going to help you kind of move forwards. Awesome. Awesome. It's been great, Sally. Um, how can people get hold of you? What's what's the best way? Uh LinkedIn is my main my main place of hanging out. So yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. Awesome. Thank you so much, Sally. Brilliant. Lovely to speak to you, Hayda.